Amen. How's everyone doing today? Good. Excellent. It's so good to see you. Nice to see you, Barbara. And me. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. Good to see you. Good to see you, Ruth. Yeah, not, not returning that one. Okay, cool. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Hey, good news. So COVID is cancelled come Thursday. That's pretty good. Yeah, give the Lord a round of applause for that. Come on. No, come on. That is great. News. I mean, like maybe there's a difference of opinions in this room, but um, uh, so go back to pastor mode now. Come on, Dom. Okay. So let me just say this, okay, that I'm, for one, I'm celebrating this. I think it's a good thing for people. I think even though there's still a lot of fear and anxiety around it, I think that one of the greatest casualties of COVID has not been the physical impact, but it has been the spiritual impact. It has been the mental aspect, the psychological aspect. And certainly from a pastoral point of view, that has been the bigger things that we've been confronting. And I think that ultimately, uh, you know, it, it is time to move back to a measure of normality. That being said... Because it is important, I think, that pastors do share their opinions. I know some people think that they should just stay quiet. But I think it is important that we offer leadership in this place. And I think it's important to say this, that in this room, there is going to be two schools of thought on it, okay? And um, did someone just go, what? <laughs> like, really? Division in the church? <laughs> you cannot be serious. Well, we're going to make sure that it doesn't become divisive. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to respect and honor those who are still apprehensive about COVID and those who still want to continue to wear a mask, okay? And those who still want some space, like it may just be that they don't like you, I don't know. Um, but ultimately, there's going to be people who come week on, week out, week in, week out, and they're going to want a bit more of a slower return to normal, and that's fine. It's totally cool because actually God has given us something called a conscience and it's important that we respond to our conscience. So for some of us in the room, we're feeling like we wanted to be mask free like a year ago and, you know, we just wanted to like burn our masks or whatever on the heath. But for others, the mask has been kind of a, not a source of comfort, but certainly something that they felt is a defense to COVID. And so either way, whatever school of thought you're in, what I just want to kind of champion in this place is this sense of tolerance and acceptance that everyone is different. And actually, in the scheme of it, before God, the mask is insignificant, okay? And actually, COVID is insignificant. And I know there has been quite a lot of fallout to do with that. Um, but kind of, you know, come Thursday, things do change. So next week, we won't be asking you to wear your mask. But if you want to continue to, you totally can. It, we don't see it as a lack of faith or that you're scared person, anything like that. Um, it's just we understand that some people have different approaches to this stuff. Good? Is that cool? Great. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Well, today, you know, let me just say prophetically in my spirit, this is what I believe. I believe the church is in a time of rebuilding, um, not just Sunny Hill, but the church across the United Kingdom and across Western society, ultimately, because, um, you know, the last two years in some way has been quite destructive to our old kind of practices as church and our old kind of habits. And uh, for some people, what that has meant is they've fallen out of the habit of going to church and fallen out of the habit of being in a consistent walk with Jesus. Um, but what I feel like the church is in the season of now is a time of rebuilding, and so, like, we can play softly, softly, catchy monkey on that, and we can go very pastoral, or we can just kind of cut to the mustard and say, listen, like, Lord, we want to see our nation changed. And we want to see Paul and Bournemouth and Christchurch transformed for the glory of God. That's what we want to see. And that ambition hasn't diminished because of the last two years, okay? If anything, it has only increased in me. I am less content than ever with the state of play in society. Um, 
Um, I pray for the government and I pray for Boris and I know that might, for some of you, that might freak you out because you might want him out. But I'm praying for him. I'm praying for the cabinet. But ultimately, my trust and confidence is not in the policies and legislation they bring out. My confidence isn't in government kind of bringing a sense of peace back to society because I believe Jesus has only ever been the answer to that. And I think he's still the only answer to that. And so that's the paradigm this morning that I'm speaking into because I do believe that God does want to move across this nation. And it's going to start in churches like this. Okay, so we want to see God change the city. So I've called it city. And I know you might go, Bournemouth and Paul and Christchurch, it's not a city. It's like three towns. It's like a conurbation. Not that you speak like that, obviously, okay. But really, cities in the Bible speak of these fortified places. And actually, I don't want to pit us against Bournemouth, Paul, and Christchurch because it's filled with people that God loves. But understand this, there are spirits at play to try and lead people into deception and keep them out of the purposes of God, and the church is the resistance to the schemes of the enemy. So we come and we push back the darkness. We come and we speak truth into a world filled with lies. We come and we minister healing to the sick. We come and we speak peace to the anxious. And so for us to do that, it's important that God does some work in us first, right? It's important. So we're going to talk about changing the city. And to do that, I want to talk about Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the most strategic, significant cities uh, in the Roman Empire. We've got some pictures coming up, hopefully, if the tech works today. Uh, there we are. This is Ephesus. It doesn't look like much now. But 2,000 years ago, it was a pretty smart, civilized place. There was about a quarter of a million. The population of Ephesus was about a quarter of a million, um, which is significant. Um, that would be like Bournemouth and pull together the population. No, maybe a bit less than that. But understand, 2,000 years ago, that made this city quite the metropolis. And it was a seaport town. In other words, it was a place of trade. And it was an important uh, strategic point in the Roman Empire. It was under Roman uh, um, authority. Uh, but understand that Ephesus actually exists in modern-day Turkey, okay? So if you wanted to go visit Ephesus, you'd have to go to Turkey and get a brilliant kebab and go and walk around the ruins, okay? It'd be quite amazing. Um, and that building there at the back is a library. Um, it doesn't look like a great library at the moment. It's like a, one, one of those with a fancy sunroof, okay? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, it was an amazing building. Um, in fact, this was the third biggest library in the Roman Empire. So we know by that that this city was educated. We also know in Ephesus that they had lecture halls, places where lectures and students would, ga uh, lecturers and students would gather and uh, philosophize about life and existence and, and deity and all these things. And that's the library up close. I mean, it looks pretty magnificent, doesn't it? It looks like pretty incredible. Um, you can see here in this image kind of what it looks like now and an artistic impression of what the high street would have looked like 2,000 uh, years ago. And then finally, check this out. This is like the Old Trafford of uh, Rome. Check this out. Look at that. This is the theater that sits kind of at the uh, outer limits of the city, uh, an arena, uh, an auditorium, a theater. And um, there, there would be things like plays there. Um, and kind of Greek comedy, no doubt. And, uh, but also, what you need to understand is that 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to be talking a bit about this in my communication lecture at Leadership Academy later in the year. 2,000 years ago, this is where civil disputes were kind of settled. So instead of taking, like, if I've got an issue, come here, Matthew. You know I love you and I have no issue with you whatsoever. But if I have a grievance against my neighbor, Matthew, 
We don't go to our own solicitors and the solicitors fight out in court. We would go to the arena and we would allow the public to decide uh, who's got the most compelling argument, okay? So this is how we would settle disputes. Okay, you can sit down. I have no beef with you, okay? Yet. But if you uh, don't pay attention, then we'll have conversations after. Okay. Um, but also, this was always also the place where Christians were kind of persecuted and mocked uh, because these public spaces and public arenas were... like That's how they know the population of Ephesus. So... This is interesting. Well, I find it interesting. I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to history. But like, if you ever wonder how they estimate um, old populations, is because the practice in the Roman Empire was to build a theater that represented 10% of the total population. So this theater seats between 25 and 30,000 people. Okay, so they can deduce from that that Ephesus was at least 250,000 people in population. Now, this is the place in Ephesus where they worship the goddess um, Artemis. Artemis, this uh, lovely lady here, okay? Now, uh, in mythology, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. Put your hand up if you've heard of Zeus, okay? This, mythologically, was his daughter, and the reason that people would go to temple and worship her was because, literally, um, she was the gateway to agriculture. So if people wanted a good harvest... They would pray and sacrifice to Artemis. Equally, if you wanted a child and you couldn't have a child, you would go and sacrifice to Artemis because uh, she was the goddess of childbirth and stuff like that. And uh, the trade in Ephesus, one of the biggest thriving trades, was they had silversmiths that made little models of Artemis and sold them right across the Roman and Greek Empire. Pretty incredible, really. And in many ways, the city was a, a fortress of ideas, of philosophy, of practices, of habits, of idolatry that in many ways almost seems unbreachable until you get to Acts 19. Okay, let me read this, Acts 19. Bearing in mind that over the last couple of weeks we've been talking a lot about the way. Week one, we spoke about Jesus being the way, the truth and the life. Week two, we spoke about our response to that claim, which is one of total surrender. And this week, check this out, Acts 19 Verse 23, speaking about Ephesus, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Okay, so this is speaking specifically to the city of Ephesus. About that time, and you'll see what time in a minute, because we'll look at it. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, what we're not going to do is I'm not going to look at all of the scriptures, but I'm going to try and give you the inside track here. Okay. Demetrius, this kind of, imagine this brawn-like alpha male silversmith, like typically they were strong, they could handle the heat, all this kind of stuff, was one of the lead Artemis uh, forgers in the city. In other words, he was one of the key um, economical strengths of Ephesus, and he was a leading silversmith um, in the city. And we know he was a leading uh, silversmith because he was able to influence the other sil silversmiths. Now, here was the complaint. Demetrius says this in the very next verse. He says, hey, the way is causing us issues. And these are the issues. People are seemingly stopping worshipping Artemis. And they're starting to consider the reality of Jesus, the way. And so the economy in Ephesus was disturbed by this idea that Jesus was now winning gradually more admirers than Artemis 
Bearing in mind that Demetrius' source of livelihood came from the production of model Artemises. I don't know if they can say Artemises or whether they have to say Artemisi. Okay. <laughs> Any kind of grammatical kind of legends in the house who can help me there? Artemis? Maybe just say that. Artemis Collective. Artemises. Okay, I like that too. Okay, so the economy shifted because of the presence of the way. Now, let me say this. Jesus was not there. So for those of you who are quite new to church or new to the scriptures, you need to understand this. At this point in the book of Acts, Jesus had already died, risen again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So what are we reading about here as Luke is capturing this moment? Well, when you read Acts, you begin to see that Luke begins to introduce the identity of the church as the way. So sometimes it looks like this, the people of the way, or followers of the way. In this instance, it's just the way, the way, exactly. That actually, Jesus, obviously now not present in physical form, the Roman Empire's issue was with the people of the way, followers of the way, because what they were saying and what they were thinking and how they were influencing was really disturbing the economy. Now listen, this is a precedent, if you like, in church history that is repeated every time God moves in a nation. Um, at our uh, prayer gathering uh, two or three weeks ago, uh, Helen Goldenberg brought a, a kind of a picture of uh, the impact of the Welsh Revival, uh, which happened in 1900s. I think it was 1906. And this is what is captured about the impact of God moving in Wales, okay, which was a very industrial, the coal mines and pub and getting drunk was one of the big cultural practices in Wales. Uh, this is what we read about it when God moved in this little town called Locha. It says this, everything sprang into new life. Former blasphemers became the most eloquent, okay, both in prayer and praise. I think that's kind of the humor of God, that someone so well-trained to use their tongue in a bad way, God all uh, redeemed, and now they applied their eloquence of speech to the glory of God rather than blaspheming the name of Jesus, which I just think, wow, isn't that cool? Do you know, like, a, her, like someone who uses the Lord's name in vain all the time at work? Put, put your hand up. My hand isn't up, by the way. I work at church, so that would be awful, wouldn't it? I mean, Richard, seriously, man, it's so bad. Um, now, just imagine actually hearing the praise of God coming from their lips. Or someone in your family. Like someone who is... Because typically what comes out your mouth is reflective of what's going on in the heart. So when someone maligns God or blasphemes against God, uh, and you could say, like, culturally, it's just in our uh, language now, just to be like, you know... In fact, when I hear it, if I hear someone say, oh, Jesus Christ, inevitably I will put in and say, is Lord of all creation. He went, oh, it's great. It's a great response. Oh, God. Oh, you know him too. Isn't he awesome? You, you need to practice some of those kind of responses. I mean, you can tell I don't work in a secular workplace because I'll probably get sacked tomorrow. But this is the thing. is like it, it almost like grates on me because I just know it's now ingrained. It's not even just a cultural practice. It's now part of our psyche. It's the way that we kind of make a point or emphasize an issue. But just imagine like God's doing such a work that their language changes to one of praise rather than pessimism or blasphemy. I mean, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, and this is what it says. These men appeared to be making up for lost time, like their praise was consistent daily. 
the years that the locust hath eaten, which is a reference to a prophetic word in Joel. Listen to this. Drunk people forgot the way to the pubs. I just think that's a funny picture, isn't it? Like going to get drunk, but not knowing where you're going to get drunk. But just like something happening just in the psyche of Wales. It says this, which in fact, the pubs became increasingly empty over the course of the weeks of the revival. All the former alcoholics were busy worshipping. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? Scores of the most respectable um, young people of the churches, okay, so young people, stand up. Let's just say if you're under 40, stand up. <laughs> no, you don't have to really. It's just because I want to make sure that I'm still in. No, you guys can. Front row, stand up. Louise, you're still young to me. You can stand up as well. So front row, okay. Listen, so it says, scores of the most respectful, respect, respectable young people of the churches who had previously never entertained such a thought joined together. And don't get me wrong, they didn't go to the pubs, okay? They didn't go and get drunk. But what they actually did is they went to the commons and the, the fields and the parks and stuff like that, and they preached. That's cool, isn't it? That's so cool. Like, everyone, yeah, boys and girls, turn and face that way. Come on, Louise, you're still young, man. Living the dream. Here's the hope of the future. <laughs> Now, before you kind of go, yeah, I want God to do that again in young people. Listen, we're a next-gen church, but it doesn't mean that we are exclusively for young people. It means that whether you're 8, 18, or 80, we make a decision that we want to be in the purposes of God, and we want to live a next-generational life. In other words, we want to press in. We don't think the purposes of God are exclusive to young people. Anyway, guys, you can sit down. Okay. Now, listen, these guys preached in the common where the gypsies usually camped. And there they showed um, the... Benighted, I think that means ignorant, maybe. This is an old word. I think that's what it means. Uh, they showed the ignorant ones the simple way of salvation. Nothing daunted or discouraged them. Wow. Was it not the new wine of the kingdom that made them bold and merry of heart? It was the young people who responded with great alacrity, alacrity, which I think means like enthusiasm, I think. I don't know, I should have definitely prepared this better. Um, to the searching challenge of absolute surrender and consecration to the service of the Lord. Wherever they went, the very air became vibrant with songs of praise. Hundreds of them thrilled with an experience to which they had hitherto been strangers, in other words, previously been strangers, scattered the divine, um, scattered the divine flame recklessly abroad to be seen once in a lifetime. In fact, Sunny Hill is part of the apostolic church which came out of this Welsh revival. That's kind of our history. That's kind of our starting story. That's our origin. And we sent missionaries around the world, and we took the gospel to so many nations. And I think what happens in time is like you, you have this honeymoon moment encounter revelation of God, and you have lots of ignorance and very little knowledge, um, but you're super enthusiastic and passionate. It doesn't matter what meeting's happening at church, you're going to go, because you just you want to be there, and you don't want to miss anything. And then you sit in church for a little while, and what happens is it, it kind of swings the other way. You're growing your knowledge and understanding, but your passion and enthusiasm depletes quite significantly to the point where you just become a well-fed Christian. And I think that's one of the things that God is wanting to address in us. Like if we want to be effective in the kingdom, it's about recovering something of that first love passion for Jesus, right? 
And uh, for some of you, you've been there before, and it's time to come back. For some of you, you've never been there. And so I want to talk about this. Because the city of Ephesus was shaken, and this is why it was shaken. Acts 19, 1 to 7. Here it is. Here's the key. So this happens before the disturbance in the city. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, another Greek city, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples... Okay, so he found some of the church in Ephesus, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Like this church clearly had been present in Ephesus for some time, had been meeting in Ephesus for some time, yet the very first thing that Paul spoke to them about wasn't, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Once saved or once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Gifts of the Spirit? Are you down with that? What's your favorite worship music? Matt Redman, Hillsong, Equippers, what is it? No, the first thing he asks is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? It's kind of an interesting thing because look at the response. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What is this Holy Spirit you speak of? Bearing in mind that the church at this point were filled with uh, Jews and Greeks, they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure the Jews had an awareness of the Spirit of God, but they didn't understand the application of it in the life of a believer. So Paul says, well, what baptism did you receive? And they say, John's baptism, which we know is a water baptism. And it's a picture of the... uh, the, the, the dying to flesh and the being raised to life in Christ. And it's an important baptism. And if you're not baptized and you profess to walk with Jesus, it is your only next step. It's the very next thing you should do because Jesus tells us to do it. So become obedient and we're baptized and it's a picture and it's like a, a, a kind of a metaphor of dying to my past and dying to my sins and being raised to life in Christ. Now that's the baptism that this church received in Ephesus. And Paul says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, listen, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So the key to the disturbance in the city was a church that had come into relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a really important thing for us to wrap our head around this January because so often in modern-day Christianity, the Holy Spirit becomes like a figure that lives in a closet, (laughs) which we bring out on Sundays maybe. Or maybe on a Pentecost Sunday where we go more aggressively after the day of Pentecost and consider that we kind of talk about the Holy Spirit for a Sunday and you know, encourage people to receive the Spirit because we are a Pentecostal church. But the truth is, is that as believers in Christ, there is no Christian walk without the Holy Spirit. It's just what it is. And I think one of the greatest threats to church in the West, and I'll I'll use the West speaking of the UK and America, is this, 
is that we replace in the Trinity, we, we go from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Some of you might be thinking, oh, dodgy territory, Dom. What are, you, what are you insinuating about the Word of God? What I'm saying about the Word of God is that the Word of God is inerrant. In other words, by faith, we believe that God put this book together. Like the bits that are easy to understand, the bits you have no idea what's going on. We trust that it's the Word of God, the revealed Word of God. But listen, it's possible to read this and miss God completely. Because the Bible is not God. It's perfect, so you could say it's kind of deified. And I would build my life on everything I read. I think there's literally no mistakes in it. I'm like that about it. I'm very protective over it. But actually, it's possible to read the Word of God and become more religious and less powerful. Now, I, I, I knew that might be quite a hard pill to swallow. Um, so let me just quote Jesus, because I feel like that's a good thing to do <laughs> when you say something that may be misunderstood. This is what Jesus says to the Jewish leaders. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Like, it's an amazing idea, especially at January, because obviously we are championing everyone to read the Bible this year. But actually, in the midst of it, I feel a check in my spirit that if you just tell people to read the Bible, but don't tell them of the desperate need for the Holy Spirit, you could just become more religious more judgmental, or more knowledgeable, but less loving. The Scripture says, it says that um, education puffs up, but love builds up. And so, like, I, I for one, I, I am in a habit, and I have been in a habit of reading my Bible through in the year, and I believe it's the living Word of God. It's the perfect Word of God. But the Word without the Spirit is legalism. It's information, not revelation. Uh, like, just again, just to make sure that, like, Jesus is getting the, your, your emails here, okay? To the Sadducees, Jesus says, you are in ever, error because you do not know the Scriptures and the power of God. The Sadducees. To be a Sadducee, you had to memorize the Old Testament, which at this point, when Jesus is talking, is the extent of the collected Scriptures, and Jesus says this to the Sadducees, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures. Yes, they do. Of course they know the Scriptures. You could, you could start a kind of a, a soundbite of a verse, and they would be able to recite the rest of the book off by heart. But Jesus kind of links this idea to the revelation of Scripture and power. So he says, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And this is, I think, a very sobering idea that, like, in your life, the Holy Spirit is given to you, which is a person of the Godhead, not just like an invisible force that is incidental. He's a person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's given 
to you to empower you to live every single day. Like, when you come to the Word of God, like, don't just think, oh, I've got to, I've got to bang out a chapter by the end of the night tonight. You know, otherwise, I'm going to fall behind in my Bible reading plan. Like, listen, like, kudos to you. I applaud such kind of resilience. But the problem is, if you do that too often, it loses its power. Because actually, the posture to come to the Scripture is in, God, I believe you want to say something to me. You want to talk to me about something. I love Ruth's testimony. I love the fact that it was in her quiet time with the Lord, which is a daily habit, that he just dropped into her mind this idea about going to sea. Like a, what are they called? Pardon? Doctor. (laughs) All right, yeah. That's what they're called. Of course they are. Doctors and nurses. (laughs) How stupid of me. I thought there was a special name for them. Okay, clearly. Okay, like... There's something about that, like God just gave Ruth and downloaded this idea in her mind. And I love that as well because I'm one of these people that believes that God moves in the supernatural healing, but he also moves through the hands of surgeons. I believe that totally, largely because of the erection of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God um, used skillful craftspeople to build the tabernacle. Like he anointed hands for such purposes for his agenda He didn't just like put them all to sleep and build the tabernacle for them. But sometimes God will move miraculously and sometimes praise God for the NHS. And in that instance, God just put it on Ruth's mind. I need to do it out of nowhere. But it's because there was an openness of spirit, not just to read the book, but to receive from the word himself. And so really want to champion that idea because what I I guess ultimately, if I was going to say in a nutshell, is, is that... In order to see a transformed city, we have to first be a transformed church. Like what we actually read about in this uh, scriptures is we, we see that Paul lays his hands on the church in Ephesus and they receive the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, some call it. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, others call it. And Um, the impact of that point then is that they go to the synagogues and start preaching boldly. Like they start going to the religious institutes to share this message about the way Jesus Christ. And then when they're kind of pushed out of that space, they go to the lecture halls of Tyrannus, so like to the university campuses, and start speaking there. And it's kind of like just this incredible thing that plays out. And the effect of two years of hard work, right, you know, it's just almost at odds with our kind of ideology about the purposes of God. Hey, I prayed once. Why haven't you done it, Lord? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I went for prayer on Sunday. Why aren't I floating out the room? I don't get it. Like, there was something about the early church that understood dependency on the Holy Spirit and hard graft. Like, that God's plan for the end-time revival that I believe we're coming towards... It's something he ignites in the church and something that he brings into existence in the people of God, but then it's the people of God who carry it to the world. So, like, sometimes our prayers for revival is like, God, would you just touch the nation? And that's cool, but how he's going to touch the nation is through you. Like, uh, I, I think this often when we consider generosity. Lord, 
there's this, let's say, um, uh, this single dad in the congregation, and he's struggling to pay for his MOT. Lord, would you just provide all that he needs for that MOT? And I just think God's in heaven going, you provide all that he needs for the MOT. Out of your overflow, blessed to bless. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. That like God, would you impact my workplace? And maybe God is saying back to you, Dave, unless your name's not Dave, Dave, you go and impact your workplace. This is what happened in Ephesus. Like, why was the culture changing? Was it supernatural? Well, yes, it was supernatural in the church, but also two years of preaching in the synagogue and lecturing in the halls of Tyrannus. It caused a shift in the economy. And some of you say, well, Dom, I just don't have the guts to be that forward in my faith. And there reveals the thing. You need the Holy Spirit. If you feel woefully unqualified to impact the world, you need the Holy Spirit. This is why last week I said that when we surrender to Jesus, Jesus says, obey my commands. If you love me, obey my, 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 uh, obey my commands. And then he says, and then I will give you the advocate, the helper. I will give you the Holy Spirit. It's, it's in those moments where the Holy Spirit certainly comes alive in our worship gatherings. And when I say comes alive, that's just a stupid thing to say. The Holy Spirit is so present amongst us as we worship I hope, but I think there's so much more. And let me tell you how the more comes. It doesn't come with a pastor praying for more. It comes with everybody who calls himself the church seeking more every day. Coming to the Word of God, saying, Lord, I need revelation. Lord, I need, I need breakthrough. I need an answer. Lord, Spirit, I need you. Help me to understand what I'm reading so that I can apply it to my life. And then when you go to work, Lord, uh, you know, Eileen, I don't know where these names are coming from. I apologize. Eileen, I, I actually do know where they're coming from, but I won't share where they're coming from. Um, it's just childhood, basically. Eileen, there was a woman called Eileen in my life. That sounds weird. Right, anyways, she, she was an older woman, and she was quite influential in my life <laughs> for, for positive godly reasons, okay? Um, you know, I don't know where I'm going, but just this idea that, like, you know, as we are receiving the Spirit of God and being filled with the Spirit to greater measure, like, life kind of takes on a different, just a different reality. Because it's in that moment where there is a supernatural empowerment that happens in the church that begins to just not just reveal to you how you should walk, but empowers you to walk in that way. Sin becomes increasingly unappealing. The presence of God becomes far more appealing. The ways of the world become just, they don't fit. They don't, it's like a jacket that doesn't fit right. And the presence of God becomes increasingly snug and tailored to your frame. This, this is how you change a city.
This is how you come against a, a, uh, a space and a place that is monopolized spiritually by bringing a church that is in relationship with Jesus and filled with the Spirit of God. Now, what's interesting about that? Is that, am I, as, as, was the timer going today? Oh, good. So I've still got like 50 minutes, is it? <laughs> no, I'm playing. Five minutes, okay. Um, so when I think, <laughs> concerning laugh, um, when Paul comes, I, 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 like in this moment in Acts 19, verse 1, where he presents to the church the need for the Holy Spirit, what is the origin of this moment? Well, actually, you go back to Acts 9, verse 1 to 2. Um, and Acts 9, verse 1 to 2. Can you put that up, Richard? Acts one, 9, 1 to 2. There's this picture of before Paul became Paul, he was Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus. But he wasn't a missionary for the church. He was a persecutor of the church. He wanted to kill Christians. That was his story. So this same kind of apostle figure that we read in Acts 19, in Acts chapter 9, was an absolute brute to the early church. And in Acts 9, verse 1 to 2, we read this. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. And that's the first time in Acts that we see that reference, the followers of the way. He found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Saul was going about his day-to-day -day life, trying to kind of meet his goals for that week, which was to persecute, then capture the church, bring them back in chains. Yet Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, encounters Paul on that road, on a normal day, just going about business. And Paul, or Saul at this point, falls off his horse, has this revelation of Jesus. Jesus speaks to his calling and his identity. And Saul gets up changed. Now, some people think that God changed Saul's name at that point, but it didn't. In fact, God didn't ever change Saul's name. Saul changed Saul's name. Saul wanted to break with Saul and become known as Paul in order to become more effective to reaching Gentiles. A whole lot of preaching to be done there. But Paul... Like literally arose a new man. And his transformation was so radical that the early church was struggling to accept it. Because it's like, well, yesterday he wanted to kill me, and today he wants to pray for me. It is weird, isn't it? It's like yesterday, like he wanted, you know, to put chains on. Today he's wanting to break chains off. There was something radical about this change of posture in Paul's life. And now I say this just because I think this is where I want to get to and this is where we end, is that like if we take the city out here, for God to change a city, he must change the church. But how did Jesus change the church in Ephesus? Well, he changed a man on the road to Damascus. And here's the encouragement if you want to change the city, allow Jesus to change your heart. Like, if you want to impact your world and your family, 
Sometimes the mission of God becomes so macro that we can't process it or understand it. It becomes debilitating because, Lord, there's like, I don't know, four and a half billion people on the earth who don't know you yet. Like the mission is too big. And, and I just think like Jesus is saying, just let me deal with your heart. That's really the, the seed of revival. It's the transformed posture of a person's heart in the presence of God. And I think how this flows is I think that when, you, when your heart becomes transformed, it changes your household. When your household becomes transformed, it impacts and influences the church. And when the church becomes transformed, it changes cities. So the key, the key to changing the city and the nation is simply coming before the Lord. And it comes back to this surrender again and saying, Jesus, would you change my heart? In fact, Ben, would you come up, please? This is really important because, like, this speaks, and to get really challenging now, it speaks to your marriage. It does. It speaks to your, your work ethic. It speaks to your spending habits. It speaks to your family dynamic and the values you establish. Because a transformed heart will surely transform their home and households. Can I just say this? Like, and I don't want to be exclusive, but I just feel provoked to say it. Is that, you know, the last two years has been brutal in many ways. And I think one of the fallouts of that has been marriages have been really... Um, undermined and weakened not in all cases but in many cases I think and apathy has got into marriages and what that means is a sense of a lack of ownership and I just get this sense like some of you are concerned about it rightly so some of you may be indifferent towards it which isn't great But ultimately this morning, this is what I need you to hear is that the key to healing in your marriage is actually first healing in your heart. And that translates to parenting as well. The key to maybe a dysfunctional household is the Holy Spirit ministering to your innermost part. Because when Jesus changes you, He changes everything. And so I just encourage you today, like in this moment, I want to encourage you to be open to the Holy Spirit today. But not just today. But actually just to commit to opening your heart to His power, His love, His strengthening. And for those of you whose marriages have already broken, and I know that's 
the case as well in some cases. God is faithful. God is faithful. For those of you who are single and maybe desperately wanting that relationship, let me say this, is that like Jesus is enough. He has to be enough. And you can say, well, it's easy for you to say that, Dom, you're married. Yeah, but like the human propensity and condition is the same. Is that unless I allow Jesus to be enough for me, I can never have a healthy marriage, ever. It's out of that security and out of that secureness of identity that my relationships are whole. See, a marriage isn't the solution to an internal deficit. In the same way, having children isn't a solution to an internal deficit. All these things will do will magnify the dysfunction that's already present. And that's what God wants to deal with, I believe. Is that like, you know, I pray that God would give you the desires of your heart. But I pray first that God would heal your heart, make you whole. That's how we're going to impact our world. It's not even about preaching on the streets, although for some people it is, and that's part of their calling and gifting, and that's awesome. But actually, it's just being a person of integrity, which means a complete and whole person, like doing life, but with Jesus, like Jesus' Holy Spirit filling them and leading them. And so I just now, in this moment, in this room, let's just bow our heads for a minute. And I, like, I've said a lot of things today. Um, but what I want to pray is just for the Holy Spirit to come. And if you feel like you need the Holy Spirit, like, or maybe you've overlooked His work in your life, or maybe you haven't been hungry for His presence, or maybe it's just been a while since you've really committed your heart to seek Him. I want to encourage you where you are to stand, where you are. But only stand if this means something to you. Only stand if you feel compelled in your heart and say, like, Lord, I know that I need the fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Or, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit for the first time. Because maybe some of you in here, you've given your life to Christ and you've been baptized even. But just as Paul says, have you received the Spirit? Because it's crucial to your life. It's crucial to your your healing, it's crucial to your effectiveness. And so if, like, or maybe this morning you've got, like, challenges in your marriage, like, stand up. Maybe you've got challenges in your family, stand up. Maybe you've got dysfunctional relationships at work, like, stand up. Like, just receive the Holy Spirit this morning. Praise God. Thank you for responding, those who have. So Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you want to empower us. 
You want to strengthen us. You want to fill us. Jesus, this morning, we bring our brokenness and we bring our insecurities and we bring our dysfunctionality, Lord. We bring our anxiety. We bring those things, Lord, that are at odds with your work. Lord, our marriages that may be under fire or just our Christian walk that may be unenthused and discouraged or flat. Jesus, I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just come and fill my brothers and sisters. Fill me, Lord. Fill us today. Holy Spirit, we want to receive from you in this moment. Holy Spirit, we, we acknowledge our need for you to not just be in our life, but to lead our life. Holy Spirit, we need you today. Holy Spirit, we need you today, Lord. Father, we look at the world and we can despair at times and we can become confused at times. But thank you, Jesus, Lord, that, Lord, this is something that you're wanting to do through your church. And Lord, today, God, I do believe that you want to fill us with your Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus, I even pray, God, as people respond to that, Lord, that you would give gifts of the Spirit. Speaking of tongues, the ministry of the prophetic, discernment, all these gifts, Lord, that empower and edify the church, Father. Lord, would you add them to us, Jesus? Father, I pray, God, that your presence would be tangibly known and experienced. Lord, Father, as we as we continue this year, Lord, as we read through the Bible, as we have fellowship in small groups, Lord, may your Holy Spirit Get a hold of our hearts. God, we need you. We need you, Lord. God, we're tired. (laughs) Lord, this life is hard. And it's confusing. And Lord, it's been weird. And so, Jesus, this morning, we just acknowledge our total need for you. And Lord, we just pray, God, that your spirit would come and move and minister to us, Lord. God, we ask it in your name, God, for, for the inner parts of us that feel broken, Lord. We just pray that you administer healing in Jesus' name. God, for those of us who have been walking in deception, Lord God, I just pray, Father, that your truth would bring us into light. Father, for those of us who have been in sinful habits and we know, Father, that we've been living in a place where you're not present, Lord, I just pray Lord, that you would bring us into alignment with your purposes, with your spirit, Lord God. Not because you want to use us, but because you love us. Help us to know your love. To be compelled by our love for Christ. And so, Jesus, I pray, God, for my brothers and sisters standing today. May they know a fresh empowerment for life. And know that you are Jesus, the way maker. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Everyone, let's stand to our feet. If there is something specific that you need prayer for this morning, maybe it is a marriage, maybe it is a child, maybe it is a work thing, maybe it is a relational breakdown, whatever it may be, there is going to be some people over here praying. Oh, there they are, Anthony and Joe. Great couple to pray this morning. We'd love you. We'd encourage you to go and receive prayer. Because prayer makes the difference. Actually, as you know, Anthony and Johanna lay their hands on you. There is something significant that can happen in the spirit if you are willing to receive what God is wanting to say and do. 
And so we encourage you to take up that opportunity. It's too easy to leave and go and grab a coffee and go home. But even if there's just slightly something that God is saying, listen, you need to deal with this today. There's an opportunity after the service. God, have your way.